Have you noticed a change in how you dress? Have you felt the turn in fashion? It feels like we've officially reached the era of looking through your closet and thinking, absolutely not, life is too short for those. Gone are the heels, gone are the suits. We've emerged from lockdown in crop tops and loose jeans, in highbrow athleisure, in wide leg pants for all, in Crocs. Fashion is more lax, and that's been really good news, both for our bodies, which we've put through a lot, and for the sneaker industry. Sneakers have become a cultural commodity. Tens of millions of pairs are sold every day, and it's on track to becoming a $100 billion business. We live in a world of sneakers. Like, if you walk down the street, you can look right here on uh, Lafayette Street in New York City, the shoes that everyone is wearing are sneakers. Sneakers, sneakers, sneakers. I'm not wearing sneakers today. I'm like the only one. (laughs) The sneaker is the main shoe now. Yeah. That's the sound of my colleague Rob Armstrong standing on the street in downtown Manhattan, waxing lyrical about sneakers. Rob's day job is as a financial commentator. He writes our unfathomably fun daily newsletter on Wall Street called Unhedged. But he's also come into a very popular men's style column. His most recent column was called How to Wear Sneakers as a Middle-Aged Man. And so for a middle-aged man, uh, a demographic with, the, with whom the sneaker is not associated, this presents a bit of a challenge, right? You want, we all wear sneakers, they're comfortable, they look cool, but like a, for an older man, what does it mean to be, you don't want to look like you're trying to be young, but you want to look cool. So how do you square that circle? This is FT Weekend, the podcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. This weekend, we have two segments about people navigating the pressures of the outside world, trying to square that circle of what they want versus what others expect. Actually, it's about men, two men trying to square that circle in two slightly different ways. The novelist Jason Mott joins me. He just wrote a book called Hell of a Book, which is about a man navigating multiple parts of himself, being black, being a man, being a writer, being famous. And what the main character is grappling with is something I think many of us grapple with, how to not be just a collection of categories like that, but a complex human who is many things at once. But first, back to Rob. He and I are going sneaker shopping. I am not a middle-aged man, but I was oddly riveted by this column. It felt like, look at this strange species in the wild. What is it like to think sartorially from their point of view? In my mind, to massively oversimplify, it's easy for men to find their style, right? There's the casual version and the formal version. Suit Ken, cargo shorts Ken, streetwear Ken, frat boy Ken, soccer dad Ken. But that's wrong. I'm wrong. The reason I feel that way is because men in our culture just don't get to have a lot of feelings, especially not feelings about clothes. So sneakers have become kind of a way into individual fashion for a lot of men. So here we are on the street. Hi. Hey. How are you? Good. Not much. I am recording audio from... I invited Rob to take me on a tour through a footlocker. But half an hour before we're meant to meet, he calls me and says we're going somewhere better. This is considered one of the coolest sneaker stores in New York, um, which is why the music is so loud. And I'm hoping we can edit okay. We're in one of those hype beast footwear boutiques in Soho in Manhattan, 
one of those stores people wait in line outside of when there's a big sneaker drop. I thought that Rob was going to come in sneakers. So in the spirit of the event, I wore this new pair of pink and black New Balances. I was excited about them. But instead, he came in a button-down, wingtip Oxfords, and an old backpack. With your outfit right now, you're wearing yes, khakis. I'm wearing like adult, I'm like boring adult man. <laughs> right, These aren't actually khakis, but they're khaki-colored jeans. Okay. And a shirt with a collar on it, so I'm like maximum boring. Right. But there's a lot of shoes. The second floor of this store is like a secret gallery of shoes. The music is triple the volume it is downstairs, and the sneakers are displayed almost floating in front of a wall of glass windows. Yeah. This is too cool for us. You know, for the financial <laughs> times, we gotta sneak out of here before they find us out. I know, <laughs> they're gonna be like, they're gonna be like, these are the experts in sneakers who are coming to the store, okay. We start with the classics, because according to Rob, every middle-aged man buying sneakers is really yearning for youth. A lot of these shoes are straight Gen Xer nostalgia shoes. This is shoe is designed to look like the running shoes that existed when I was 13. That is what this shoe is all about. You know, Can you describe like, that shoe? It's, it's, it's a, it's a, that's a Nike, I would call it a waffle trainer, I think is what they call it. It's like old-fashioned sole, old-fashioned running shoe. But now no one will wear this running. It's a, it's a shoe for looking like a 13-year-old circa 1987, which is what we all want to look like. We're distracted by the Nike Blazer, a shoe built to tempt him. Nike Blazers. And Nike Blazer is a nostalgia shoe, nostalgia style shoe that never actually existed before. It's like just built from the ground up to look like an old fashioned basketball shoe. Oh, that's interesting. It it's looks like, like cool it. and simple or whatever. But I don't think we ever wore these as kids. Yeah. You know, so. Rob's got two rules about wearing sneakers at his age. If you're a middle-aged man and you want to wear trainers, if you want to go for an old-fashioned classic shoe, like here's another one, Stan Smith's. Yeah. Super classic, simple shoe. I would like the laces ones, that's the Velcro one I don't like. But then if you're not going to go classic, you go weird. Like there's nowhere in between. You just go for like far out weird shoe like this and you just go for it. Rob is holding an Adidas Sean Watherspoon collab called the Super Turf Adventure Sneaker. $160, kind of like a hiking trail shoe, but bright orange and purple, green, blue, part corduroy. It's got a removable waterproof pouch that's fastened on top of the laces. I need you to explain this shoe again because I just I think I would buy this shoe. It's, I don't know what that is. I don't know why it has a pouch on it. It's like got weird colors and the soles are like a space station or whatever. But the point is... It's an Adidas. Looks like, yeah, it's yeah. an Adidas. Yeah, the point is... Don't go for subtlety. You're wearing sneakers. Like, if you want to be subtle and grown-up, wear the shoes I'm wearing right now. Wear wingtips. Right. And then you're a grown-up. But if you're going to be a kid and wear sneakers, you got to act like a kid, right? And have fun with it. So, classic is good, weird is good, but Rob's anathema is what he calls an in-between sneaker. It insults him. We leave the store, and he explains it. What you don't want to go for is a shoe that isn't sure of itself. That's not, it's not a sneaker, it's not quite a sneaker. Like, are these real shoes? Could I wear these to a fancy restaurant? Like that middle ground where you're like kind of a kid and kind of a grown up yeah. is an, um, a terrain to be avoided. So this sort of say. like casual yes. uh, leather, yes. like don't look at me too closely yes. and <laughs> notice like that I'm a sneaker. The, you're, you're like a hopeless middle-aged man and you have the person at Nordstrom is dressing you for casual Friday. <laughs> And it's like, here is this glossy, 
uh, white or black or brown, characterless <laughs> sort of nice shoe for $400. Please buy this because you're an idiot. <laughs> so it seems modern midlife masculinity is this delicate balance of chasing boyish youth, but not chasing it too much. And now we're in the wild. We're on the streets of Soho. We're walking around. We're looking at the shoes on people's feet. Look at the shoes we're seeing here. The, the very black vans with the white stripe that you're talking about. Yeah, it's two girls wearing the same pair of vans. <laughs> but that, there's that brand you were talking the Vega, about. Yeah. The Vega, yeah. And someone wearing the classic Stan Smith. Yeah, I mean, this is with like, a nice outfit. Like, now that I've got Rob's ear, I realize I actually have a lot of questions about sneakers. The other thing I struggle with with sneakers while we're on the topic yes. is like, um, I, I like an original sh- I like not wearing something that I know that everyone's going to be wearing. Correct. And yet, there is something about a classic shoe, yes. like a classic sneaker, yes. that's okay. Like, it's okay that everyone else yes. is wearing that it. that is a good point yeah. that you're wearing. And there are certain pieces of clothing, other pieces of clothing like that, like the white or blue Oxford cloth shirt for a man, right. an American man. Yeah. It's a totally standard item. Right. And it just fits into the, it's like fits into the wardrobe, like it clicks into a certain spot. Exactly. And I think, you know, one of the great things about the classic brands of sneaker, if you have a pair of Air Jordans, it's like, that's what they are. Everybody knows, instantly recognizable. Yeah. And it sort of fits in with certain things. Thanks. Actually, the sneakers that we're seeing, like, people wear brands, people wear brands. Yeah, in a a weird way. And I've never thought about this before you mentioned it. Yeah. There's hard, it's hard to think of a kind of clothing where the brand is more important yeah. than for sneakers. Right. It says, it always says it right on there. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. You know? And the other thing that you brought up that I think is interesting is the question of what, it's, what price is appropriate to pay classic yeah. Air Jordans in green and nice. white. Very yeah. good. That's Rob uh, just pointing at shoes on the street and naming them. Because the thing about sneakers is they really wear out. Yeah, they, they do. They are not a permanent piece of clothing. Right. Right, you, you know, get a year or two of regular use. I mean, they are done. the closest to the ground that you could be. They're, yeah, like, they're, they're, they're on the ground, they're not really made out of very hardy materials. You can't have them resold like right. you can with a proper pair of shoes. Exactly, that's uh, true. And so, if you drop 400 bucks, you better love those shoes, yeah. you know? Rob wants us to know that we are talking about your average sneaker buyer here. This is all out of the domain of what you would call sneakerheads, which is people who buy and resell limited edition sneakers as investments. There's an economy based around sneakerhead culture. The global sneaker resale market is estimated to be worth about $6 billion. The FT actually did a video about the sneakerhead economy. I put it in the show notes. I think about it often. People will always find a way to dress up. Yeah. Even if we say, oh, it's all casual now, we've thrown away our ties or whatever. Yeah. But people will find a way to care because we are a vain and status-conscious species. <laughs> right. So people say, fuck it, we're just wearing sneakers and jeans now. There is going to be incredibly fine distinctions to be made among types of jeans, types of sneakers. Right. Human beings will find a way to have plumage. Yeah. This turn in fashion, it's good. It's nice to see us all fluff out our feathers after lockdown and have leisure wear and street wear now be a mainstream aesthetic that even the white middle-aged man is trying to get in on. I like it. I mean, you know, it's not. It's not the room full of people in Milan who decide what's cool. 
there's like some 13-year-old girl in Brooklyn. <laughs> right. Who has like found some knockoff Chinese shoe that yeah. is really cool. And she is the one who's in control of our destiny. Exactly. You know, that's where, because Manhattan, let's face it, the cool stuff doesn't happen in Manhattan anymore. Right, no. You know, cool we're all like old and rich here. <laughs> but like there's some kid out there in the outer boroughs mm -hmm. who's figuring it out. And uh, somebody's going to see them in those shoes and it's going to spread like wildfire. Somehow we're getting rained on at a time that it's not... Is it? It's not right now. New York City. I think they're washing this is windows. Truly disgusting. <laughs> I just, I have to say, over the course of this walk, yes. we've seen a guy fall off yes. his scooter <laughs> and just continued hard. talking very yeah. hard. We've been rained on by like yeah. really Filth disgusting. From a building. Filth from a building. Yeah, yeah. We've stepped over various passed out people. <laughs> exactly. It's a totally normal New York City walk very in some ways. Very day. standard. We tend to default into categories, don't we? The cool 13-year-old girl in Brooklyn, the white middle-aged man in Manhattan. And that makes sense. Categories are an important part of identity. They often connect us to a community, to like-minded people, to a shared culture, to a history. But sometimes a category feels like a blunt instrument. Does everything you do have to fit into the boxes? Who decided on the boxes? I was thinking about this when I sat down to interview Jason Mott, author of Hell of a Book, which was just shortlisted for a National Book Award. Jason is a best-selling novelist, and this is his fourth novel. For this book, he threw the rulebook away and wrote something unpredictable, even to himself. What would you say your book is about? It's a good question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's the story of an author on book tour who gets wrapped up in the questions of race and identity in America. Like that's the quickest, shortest, neatest, sloppiest answer I can kind of give for it. On the surface, the story looks like a version of his life. Man works at a call center in a job that he hates, writes a best-selling book on the side, and it shoots to the top of the charts. That's actually what happened to Mott. But in the novel, the main character goes on book tour and his success forces him to face questions about himself and about our society that he's been avoiding. The novel is experimental, it's poignant and sad, it's funny and absurd. You don't know if the character is sane, you don't know who's real and who's a figment. There's an adult and a kid, but maybe there's two kids, and maybe both are actually the adult, and it just doesn't really matter. What I found most interesting about this conversation were these questions about identity and categorizations. Does Jason Mott speak on behalf of all black men in America? No more than Rob speaks on behalf of all middle-aged white men. So how do you hold both? How do you use your platform to say something meaningful about the identities you hold and then also be a complex, singular version of you? You know we love conversations about identity here, so I'm just really glad to be able to share this one with you. Jason Mott, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Your novel, Hell of a Book, is about many things, but the basic plot is that an author wrote a best-selling novel and he's on book tour. So we're with him on this slightly chaotic book tour. And I know you wrote your first novel while you were working at a call center and that became a best-selling novel and you went on a book tour. Can you tell me a little bit about your book tour? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, book tours are very surreal, chaotic, bizarre things that no one ever warned you about when you were like a aspiring writer and hoped to be a writer one day. Mm -hmm. So when The Return came out, I was on book tour for about six to eight weeks or so. I can't remember how it was, but it was basically 
um, a new city every day for just weeks on end. And like you're in this pattern of you wake up, you rush to the airport, you hop a flight, you get to a city, you do um, you, all this stuff leading up to the evening when you do a reading somewhere. Then you go to bed like 10 o'clock at night and you wake up the next morning at 5 a.m. and you do it again. Mm-hmm. There's even a point at one point where like I passed out from exhaustion on a flight, like in the middle of the aisle at 10,000 uh. feet. It was so very dramatic. <laughs> and when you were on the book tour, you've been on probably a number since. Were you thinking at the time, like, this is content? <laughs> that was my immediate thought. Um, <laughs> as soon as I finished Book Tour for the Return, I knew I wanted to write a story about an author on Book Tour because it was just so surreal and so bizarre that I, I felt like people wouldn't believe most of it. Yeah. You've written a number of novels and novellas since, but this book feels different. Like, obviously, it's very meta. Mm-hmm. Toward the beginning, you say, I'm an author. My name is blank. Maybe you've heard of me and maybe you haven't, but you've probably heard of my book. It seems to be selling pretty well. It's called Hell of a Book. And according to the reviews, it's a hell of a book. And we're reading this in a book called Hell of a Book. (laughs) So as a reader, you just kind of like take your hands off the wheel and like let it take you where it wants you to go. And it's not written like anything I've ever read. I really loved it. I would imagine as a writer, you would have to give yourself a lot of freedom to be able to do the book you want and the style you want. Yeah, no, that's exactly what it was because I was out of contract and like I, it was kind of the book I was writing for me as opposed to writing for other people. Mm. And I'd always wanted to write in a more creative kind of off the wall kind of style. And so I just said, well, I'm gonna do it on this one and just have all the fun I can. So yeah, I let the creative brain just do what they wanted to do and didn't question any decision making. It's like, let's just see where it goes. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, here we are. <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Um, I mean, as I, you know, the book really exposes the publishing industry, like all the secrets. (laughs) At many points, the author's on tour and he's talking about interviews with journalists, that feeling of going from one to another and repeating yourself and telling the decided upon narrative of that book. Mm -hmm. And I thought when reading this, like, oh God, how am I going to interview Jason Mott? (laughs) (laughs) That has been the most common response. (laughs) Everyone's like, I don't know what to ask you because you've made fun of people asking these questions. I don't know what to ask you now. (laughs) Exactly. And like, so like, how am I not a caricature of me? And also like, did Jason Mott write me? Like, am I real? Am I just a character in his book? (laughs) Um, But it also made me reflect on the game we all play. And um, one question it, it plays with is interviewers asking writers about works of fiction and asking that dreaded question of like how much of it is true and how much of it is about you. I was curious to ask you, what do you think is behind the question? Like, why is this a question that people care about? I think it's a question people ask because they want to know how much of their lives they can kind of see in the book. They can expect to see in the book and they can expect to take lessons from how maybe the characters solve things or the character kind of engage with things. My theory is that we come to all works. The first question we ask is like, how is this book actually about me? And that's the first question every reader asks, including myself when it comes to a page. That's interesting that like, If the reader is told, yes, this is true, it really happened, that gives them permission to feel that that's a thing that I can also feel. Yeah, because if it's real, you know, if we use the air quotes, we want, you know, if it's quote unquote real, then it has some way of helping you figure out the world you're living in. And I think that's the thing that people always want. Yeah, there's also sort of something profound about the fact that sometimes it doesn't really matter if it really happened. It felt particularly poignant because there's a few different characters, um, two different black young children, boys who are similar to each other and might be the same person and might not. And then there's the author and his memories of being a boy, which is he those children? Is he not? And 
it was playing with that, it felt, that like the details don't matter. I mean, and in this book, exploring what it means to be black in America, particularly a black boy or black man in America, maybe to the outside, they're all you. Or on the inside, you carry all of them. And not just those kids, but Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and George Floyd and so many kids who have been lost. That is very much one of the goals of the book is to kind of present this argument about the unification of all these identities and all these people who are shot and killed and like all these kids who have died and the adults who have died and also the adults who live through it, the, the adults who live day to day in a world where these kids are being shot. And that sense of all these people are different and yet there are very much shared experiences. They're very much the same character, same person in a certain kind of way. Like that's definitely one of the many themes of the book for sure. Mm. One of the parts of the book that I was sort of riveted by, because it was both so awful and sort of funny, was this part about the media trainer. (laughs) So the author goes to get media training, um, and he's just this awful man, but he kind of tells it like it is, like he says everything that goes unsaid. And the worst is the industry's belief of, like, don't write about race, don't write about being Black. That's the last thing people want to hear. I guess, how much did you feel like that was something you were getting from the industry? It kind of occurs in a very indirect way. There was no, you know, the character in the novel is very much a hyperbole kind of version of the real media trainer. Because I actually did have a media trainer at one point. And I don't want to, you know, slander him because he was a great guy who actually taught me a lot about talking to people about books. Mm -hmm. But the industry as a whole, and I think America just on a larger scale, like there's definitely a tendency to kind of push away from directly speaking about the Black experience. It is very common and very welcome and very like established to tell, you know, classic slave narratives, civil Mm -hmm. rights narratives, and, you know, occasionally kind of inner city narratives. And that becomes the trifecta of what the Black experience is assumed to be and is portrayed to be in America. But it is the the smaller, more nuanced, more accurate version of what being Black in America that is actually about. That's the thing that is hard to get through the machine of publishing or film or television Mm -hmm. because it is, it's not established. And like, therefore, people think that no one can connect to it, no one can relate to it. You know, in Hell of a Book, you've got a character who is African-American, late 30s, early 40s, who loves film noir and, mm-hmm. like, you know, quotes or a bunch of old movies. And, like, that type of Black person is not a character that you get to see very often. And yet, they exist in droves. You know, I'm very much that character. I love, you know, film noir. I love anime. I'm an old anime nerd. I'm a video game nerd. Like, mm-hmm. we are all these things apart from just the inner city narrative and the civil rights narrative and the slave narrative. Yeah. Do you feel that the reception to this book is disproving this feeling? I mean, or I don't know. How, how do you feel about it now? Yeah, I think about that a lot. And I'm kind of on the fence as to far how I feel about you know what the, the reaction to the novel is proving or disproving or not proving. Mm. Only because it is a story that is told in contrast to like the white American narrative, like what is considered to be the white American narrative. It oftentimes is not simply taken as like the other part of the black experience. Um, there are definitely some mm-hmm. re- some readers and some parts of this that are being kind of, people are coming to it and they're seeing like, oh, this is also what the black narrative can be and what the black experience is. And I think those are great. Mm-hmm. But then I also kind of see it being kind of tucked into the pocket of, oh yeah, we need a story about how Americans are oppressing black people. So here's a story also like, yeah. and there, don't be wrong, like part of Hello Book definitely discusses that, but there's this sense of what the black imagination is and the stories that can be told from that imagination. Mm. And they're almost always only given merit and only given value when they're speaking to white America. Some of the most moving parts of the book 
for me were the conversations between the author and and the kid. And it's like a person that he can work through his feelings about things with, it feels like. And one of the sort of conflicts or discussions is the kid sort of wants to care. Like when an awful thing happens, like another black child is killed, he wants to feel it. And the author is saying, like, you can't let it all in. You have to self-preserve. You have to pick and choose. Yeah, because the author and the kid are, they kind of represent two different points in time in like the Black experience and the Black journey. Because, I mean, the fact of the matter is, like, if you let all of it in, it can very quickly overwhelm you because there's so much in the news and so much in just reality that we all kind of contend with. And this, is, this isn't just confined to, like, this particular mm-hmm. topic, but, like, you know, the world is so big and everything seems to be on fire all yeah. the time. And that if you let it all in, like, you will get swallowed up by it and you can't navigate it all. And part of the author's problem is he's been doing that for so long that he's pushed it completely away. Like he's detached himself from the real world and, you know, in a very literal sense for him. So when he sees the kid, the kid kind of forces him to remember that like, you do have to let some of Mm. it in and you have to engage with it. You have to be impacted by it and you have to try to affect change. Yeah. One of the parts that stands out is the author's Oracle kind of comes to him in the form of Nicolas Cage, which like, because why not? right? <laughs> exactly. Because he loves Nicolas Cage. And so here's Nicolas Cage on a plane. And it might be a dream and it might be real. And again, it doesn't matter. And he tells him this truth. And it's so direct. And it's just like, society tells you you're scary. As a black man in America, you're someone to fear. And then maybe you unconsciously become afraid of yourself and in turn afraid of your own voice. And then think, Maybe if what I'm told about myself that I'm something to fear isn't who I am, and then suddenly you're unknown to yourself. I, I, like, man, I mean, like, <laughs> it was just like, was like, yeah, total, yeah. So, wh- <laughs> where were you when you wrote that? Like, where did that come from? <laughs> so, I am so pleased that that scene has gotten like the attention that it has <laughs> so gotten because like everyone remarks on that scene. I am a massive Nick Cage <laughs> fan. I have been for decades. I can't remember not being a Nick Cage mm-hmm. fan. And I mean, not in like the ironic way that some people are, but like I'm a genuine, like I think he's a brilliant <laughs> actor. Like I'm a genuine fan. And so my agent and I were revising a novel before we were sending it out to anyone. And Nick Cage was not in the novel. <laughs> okay. No mentioning of him at all. But at the same time, I was in this zone of like, I'm just having fun with this book. But anyhow, there were some scenes that my agent wanted to take out. She said, like, the scenes are okay, but they're just kind of redundant. And she's like, can you take these scenes out and just give me something else? Like, I'm not sure what else, what the other thing is, but like, either don't put something in or just add something in. And she was completely right. Like, they didn't drive things along right. enough. And so sort of joking, sort of not joking, I messaged her. I emailed her back because I, at the time I didn't want to take the scenes out. I said, I'll take the <laughs> scenes out, but I'm putting Nick Cage in the book because it had been like this inside joke that I wanted to do it for like months yeah. now. And she goes, I don't care, mm-hmm. do it. And in about a week to week and a half, I went through and added Nick Cage in and wrote that scene. And the scene completely got away from me in the greatest of ways. Like yeah. I did not expect it to go where the scene went. But as soon as I finished writing it, I was like, how did I not have this scene in here? And like, how did this never happen before in the book? And so like, I wound up taking like another two weeks or three weeks to actually like really refine it and make it work. Mm. But it was funny because that, that scene happened just because I was in this zone of like, I'm going to do what I want with this book and I don't care what happens. And I want to put Nick Cage in the book because I love Nick mm. Cage. And it's cool to see readers come across that moment. It's so good. And then you're like, <laughs> Nick Cage dropped a truth bomb and then just kept sleeping on the plane. <laughs> 
And it ends with something that's like fact or fiction. It was sort of like, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the case. Exactly. There's all kind of Easter eggs in that scene of like my favorite stories in that scene. There's there's layers to that scene that like, it's just so fun for me to read. I bet. It really landed. <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> yeah, so good. Well, Jason, congratulations on being a finalist. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for talking with me. This has really been memorable. Appreciate it. No, thank you so much. This was absolutely wonderful. Thank you. That's the show this week. You have been listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Please keep in touch. Say hi. Let me know what culture you're into and who you'd like to hear on the show. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp, where you can see a photo of Rob holding his Nike blazers. You can find links and everything mentioned in the show notes, as always. There's also a special, really good discount there just for you on an FT Weekend subscription. You can find that link in the show notes and also at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Please subscribe, leave us a review, and share the show with some friends who you know like podcasts. If you like the episode, that honestly very much helps the show, and we appreciate it. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Katya Kamkova and George Drake Jr. are our senior producers. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbard-Doyen are our assistant producers with special help from Alice Fordham. Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley and Manuela Saragosa are our executive producers, and we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We'll find each other again next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.